0: One of your friends writes a, a passage or a, tells a story in your book about flying with a guy who's a crusty crusty old major who's got a lot of experience flying fighters in Vietnam. And you talked in your book about the fact that, you know, going to Luke and being an instructor was a good assignment and the guys coming back from Vietnam were looking to try and get that assignment. Um, right. but, but it raised the question in my mind around what sort of influence those guys with, combat experience had on you as you were going through that 104 conversion course um and what sort of uh, things they were saying to you about combat and and you know there's uh, because I know enough to know that you can go through a formal training course and be taught one thing and then you get to an operational squadron and they may say to you, actually, we don't do it that way. You know, we're, we do it slightly differently because our experiences tell us to do it differently. Right. So so were you were you getting some really good inside knowledge from those instructors about what real combat was like and the differences between training and combat?
1: Well, of course, there were these guys from, from came back from Vietnam in my days and, uh, we had a lot of respect for these folks because uh they were older pilots uh, very experienced very cool calm collected guys you know they you could almost feel that they were a little bit laid back and uh while they were very um strictly following the same rules they were saying yes this is combat and this is training but uh, they were telling us you know eventually they were. Giving us a few stories about low-level runs in in Vietnam and, and uh, how to be under under attack and uh, what it felt like. Of, obviously, not in the F one hundred four because that wasn't going to war there. But uh, they had other uh, other planes, and so um, yeah. Everybody, every time you meet someone who's coming back from an actual war scenario, it makes it does something with you. You know, you you focus, you put your focus on different things. Mostly flight safety. you know he said you know focus. you know one key word was key sentence was if if it gets difficult, get out of there. you know don't stick with a with a um, ill-fated formation you know if if you lose radar contact, if you lose radio contact or if something doesn't look right, try to find your way, follow the safest course of action you know keep it simple and um, those simple words, Today, even today, you know, show me that, you know, fly the airplane first, look after yourself, you know, and don't be target and trigger happy. You don't don't the fascination of the goal. Uh, don't try to pursue it to the very end unless you have to, you know, as well, maybe a second chance tomorrow. So this is something I learned from these guys and it was good to have them around, actually. We're nice guys. Yeah. Did you lose anybody
0: through the the training pipeline? Did did you experience any any mishaps or any losses during your training time?
1: Um, not at that stage, no. We had a few losses late, later on when I was back in Germany. Um, no, we had no flying accidents. We had a an Iranian guy uh, shooting, no, <laughs> kicking himself out of the traffic pattern on an ejection seat of the T thirty seven a Persian guy then, you know, before the revolution. But there was a mistake and a misunderstanding. So nothing happened to him. Uh, we had a few top technical problems. One guy had to um, to punch out with his instructor because he had a stuck a stuck throttle over the Gila Bend desert where the firing ranges was. And he had to just abandon a perfectly fine aircraft just because he couldn't move the throttle anymore. Not enough thrust, so he wouldn't have made it back home. And they just decided to zoom up and, and leave in a controlled way and came back in the chopper. <laughs> I talked to him.
0: <laughs> did you did you think about that? Um, one of the things that seems to be common amongst my guests is that they don't, you know, as young guys in particular, they, they felt invincible. It would always happen to somebody else. Did you think deeply about your mortality, about the risks and the dangers of what you were doing?
1: Sometimes afterwards, yes. I have a few instances where I almost hit someone in training um, even in the T-38 already where um, a fellow pilot, a student pilot misjudged his closure rate on a a rejoin, a rejoin exercise. We were the lead aircraft and he was coming in from behind and uh, we just noticed he came in smoking like hell uh with a closure rate impossible uh, to master and he couldn't he couldn't fit in so we all rolled out and just got the hell out of there because we before we hit e- hit each other and one instance was um later in um, night flying it was already a tornado aircraft when I almost had hit another jet uh, because I misjudged my own closure rate rejoining this guy so Later, afterwards, you think, "Oh, you, you could all be dead." And in therefore, 104 I had one instance, where I unintentionally undercross an entire formation, because my left hand sleeve, the flight suit sleeve, was was um, catching, was stuck with the um, you know this uh, metal uh, writing pad you have on your knee, and there's a as a pencil holder with a with a little. Um, Metal device, and this was um, catching on my left sleeve. And I was trying to get loose. And while I was doing this, I was in the clouds, undercrossing the entire formation without noticing it. And when mm. I came up again, I was on the left side instead of the right side. So I could have killed everybody in the flight, in- including myself. So you say, wow, this is not it, not your day.
0: Did you find that through, through your flying career, those sorts of thoughts crept in more regularly?
1: More sort of contemplation well the older you get uh, and once you start having kids you know you start to be extra careful but I have a friend who is also in my book uh, he looks across the street and he says how can I put more safety in my flying you know just be aware of the risks and do it step by step you know even though it's not an airliner you have checklists and you can follow certain rules and regs you don't have to do everything by heart, um, try to be careful, you know, and if it doesn't look right, as I said, just get out before you hit the ground. And uh, this taught me a lot of stuff. And I think with more experience gained, uh, you get more careful, the older you get, of course. Uh, I think it's a normal thing. You make progress also. And the the people have never uh, who have never, um, uh, felt that way. They paid a high price. We had accidents. Uh, guys, you know, that never came back and uh, wanted to do that extra turn, wanted to do that extra tight turn on the display, and, and they just crashed. Mm. So, happened.
0: So, tell us about the graduation ceremony then from F 104s and, and the guests you invited.
1: Yes, uh, F-104 graduation ceremony is a very formal big deal in the United States Air Force, you know, with the flags and everything. And there's a speaker and, uh, um, you know, the audience, ladies, you know, all the all the instructors, relatives, and we invited Mr. Tony Levere, who is the senior starfighter. He is he's a big shot from Lockheed, who probably flew all the up to then all the important planes Lucky to ever build. And uh, this gentleman came up, and we were actually flattered to have him. And uh, he was addressing us like normal buddies, you know, f- uh, fellow test pilots, <laughs> and a very friendly, very down to earth man, talking about his own previous experience and complimenting us on being uh, starfighter pilots now. And he personally signed all. Uh, Starfighter a markbuster do- documents, you know, that we got to hang on the wall, little uh, ceremony, and um, everybody had a Mark number, personal number that we got, and everybody in the world has that document signed by Mr. LeVier, so uh, it was a proud moment. I mean, I was very happy to meet this gentleman, and, um, yeah, I was um, overwhelmed to see him in the, in this uh in this context, you know, on our graduation day.
0: Did you yeah. did you go through, did you go to Mark II then during training?
1: Yes, it's part of the program. Okay. Uh, the Mark II ride is, um, you know, basically Mark II, flying at Mark II, it doesn't make much sense uh, in a tactical environment, you know, it may may, may be okay, but generally if you burn all the gas you have, uh, you have a few minutes left until you go, got to go back to base. But to learn the um, the flight characteristics, of course, you, you're going up to Mach-2, Mach-1 and Mach-2, and you learn uh, what it does to the plane, how it handles, and what indications you have in the cockpit. Hmm. And that means uh, the instructor, together with you, goes through a thorough briefing, and he shows you, yes, um, after the transition of Mach-1, you will have very little... Um, noise in the cockpit Uh, you won't hear any bang or noise once you uh, transit the sound barrier but you will you have a slight um, pitch up and down indication and the vertical velocity indicator and then some flickering of the airspeed gauges but then you just go through and the airplane handles beautifully it reacts smoothly and uh, as, as you uh approach Mark 2, there's um, a technical thing happening in the F-104 which is called the T2 Reset. Um, there will be a slow light coming on because the uh, air intake is only designed to take a certain impre- pressure and temperature. Uh, so you you could technically go faster, but you have to slow down to stay below Mark 2. And the 2 T2 Reset is a feature that increases your engine RPM by a couple of percent to make up for the lower air density because of the uh, the higher temperature in the intake. So to give the airplane, uh, to, to give the engine a bit more thrust at that level, uh, increased from 100 to 104 percent RPM. That's it. So mm. that's the F-104 J-79 feature.
0: Did you also invite... I thought you had, maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought you had invited to your graduation ceremony a German speaker who flew in. And am I misremembering this? Was it, was it William Messerschmitt or someone oh, like that?
1: Oh, I know what you mean. No, this was a comrade of mine. Uh, this was a oh. guy uh, who graduated some seven years early. Yes, okay. uh, Mr. Messerschmidt himself, the Yoda. Yoda of German aeronautics. <laughs> Yeah, he came, and um, the way he described it, I loved it. He they they secretly invited this guy, and he was of course getting his VIP treatment from the United States Air Force. You know, they limousine service to the bachelor officers' quarters and everything. And this this gentleman, um, I think he uh, he did a long lecture about World War II aircraft industry in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> which must have been fun so but i wasn't there unfortunately i i only heard it from my friend okay
0: so uh, i miss i misremembered okay yeah
1: yeah massive message we haven't
0: we haven't talked then so you're you're at a point in your um f104 career then where you're about to go back to germany and we haven't really talked about uh marine fliegels i'm i i do not speak german so hopefully the the um, pronunciation is not wrong there, but no, German right. German Marine Air Force equivalent. Um, what? What? But you, and you have already hinted at what the mission was because you talked about yeah. low level, you know, looking for ships and, and and low level aircraft. But what was then the intention behind having those four squadrons of F one hundred fours? What was your area of operation? You, you know, how far out were you going to go and what, what were you primarily tasked to do then? What were you going to be returning to when you got back to Germany?
1: Right. Okay. The the first, the whole background was that Goering in 1939 said everything that flies belongs to the Air Force. And our Navy, our young Navy from the 50s, was mad about that and decided, no, if we start again, we're going to have our own aircraft again. So no more, you know, dealing with the Air Force at that point, even though we could do common training. And they believed, and they still believe, that uh, navally, naval trained personnel that was on ships has a better understanding for the um, yeah, area of operation or the concepts and the communication with the ships and the, um, the Allied um, forces in the area. Now, you ask, where we did, uh, where did we fly? We were mostly operating in the Baltic Sea, in the western part of the Baltic Sea around Denmark and, of course, in part of the North Sea. So talking stuff at a range, uh, we could go to east of Bornholm Island, which was uh, Danish island in the Baltic, um, going to with external tanks uh, in the neighborhood of Kaliningrad, and then uh, return uh, low level back to Germany or Uh, patrol along the uh, Danish Straits, uh, check for traffic there and um, basically um, continue on to the North Sea coast where there's also ships maybe approaching or coming over from the north of Denmark. So uh, 80% of our work was done over water
0: Mm.
1: and our bases were so close uh, to the Iron Curtain that I would say literally within five to 10 minutes, we were over international waters, but very close to East Germany and Poland, and it was like a, a fish pond full of uh, NATO and Warsaw packed planes and ships. It was fun. So, uh, yeah.
0: So, so what um, what were you going to be doing then? You were so in 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 the peacetime environments of the Cold War. You were going out over the sea looking for Russian vessels or yes. you know, Soviet, Soviet vessels? And then what would you do?
1: Well, imagine this was before satellite and GPS, right? So our headquarters, um, <clears throat> which was assigned to NATO, which was the German fleet command in the area of Kiel, Northern Germany, they told us, okay, guys, do surveillance of uh possible mine laying uh, forces in the Baltic. So we went out with this very basic uh, general task of surveillance, uh, no more details. So we could decide where exactly we wanted to go and how we wanted to set it up. And depending on the weather conditions, could we fly low level to 200 feet or would we have to go up to a thousand or something? And then um, Do visual reconnaissance, uh, for instance, in a two-ship formation, two starfighters coasting out, and then five minutes later, um, leaving our coastal waters and following a certain track. You know, the Baltic is actually quite narrow, so you can't really, you know, do much. You know, you do right-hand or left-hand turn inside the Baltic and hope to come across um, a Russian destroyer. And we did. So there were Russian destroyers, there were minesweepers from the from the East Germans. There were four engine bombers humming around. There were uh actually surface forces of all kind. Even NATO, you know, unannounced, you know, you, you saw your own chips. We didn't always exactly always exactly know where they were because we had no um no GPS and satellites. So um they actually told us to look, and if we did find, for instance, um, a Kashin uh, or a Krivak destroyer, Russian, well, we would just circle it, um, physically write down the tail number or the indicator, get out, fork out the uh, uh, the crypto table, convert that into, uh, you know, figures and, and, and numbers, and um, send it um, via broadcast to the via radio to to our headquarters mm-hmm. and uh so all this in a single seat plane and uh you know you were you were flying low level at 450 knots uh, 200 feet writing down things on your knee pad while you were circling this russian destroyer it was quite a challenge sometimes whether visi- <laughs> there was no real horizon the visibility wasn't so good and you had to uh, to keep your other guy in 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 view so you didn't hit him or you didn't lose him so come back together as a formation and uh, this was one of our primary tasks surveillance and they knew we were coming
0: <laughs> i was i was going to say did you have a radar warning receiver in the airplane did you know yes, if they were yes, we did have a,
1: a later on not in the beginning but we did get a radar warning receiver with a basic electronic library, with a few uh, known parameters of Mig's and you know threat radars, search radars, so yes. This would it would, more,
0: it would it would it tell you what type was looking at you then, or would it just sort of categorise it as a an early Mig type or later Mig type, or would it would it say to you Mig? 19 mig-21 MiG basically
1: very basic very basic information uh you know a threat uh non-nato threat radar you know you may you may have been in the tornado this was more like a um, detailed information where you could actually see uh various symbols and distinguish you know uh among those uh, those planes but in the f-104 there wasn't much actually almost not at all in the beginning
0: so, so you kind of know you were you were if you saw a surface contact on your radar and you and you approached it and you started receiving radar warning indications you were you would know it wasn't a NATO vessel but you wouldn't necessarily know what
1: well what type we were um almost always going for visual identification because um our our equipment was very way too limited to actually judge from a radar blip or any other indication which was which so we we aimed for even if the visibility was only like five kilometers we were trying to get down and, and see what was there and uh in one instance uh danish radar coastal control on bornholm um codename ice cap they told us hey there's a, a bomber uh, contact was a, a slow moving uh, propeller probably propeller driven plane, some 70 miles, whatever, Southeast of us to go check it out. And we went there and he says, I have a second contact. He said, well, I can see this four engine bomber, but I don't see any other plane. He said, I do see a second radar contact, please check around maybe. And then we decided one of us was diving in the clouds Um, near the contact that we followed. And there was actually a second plane, like a goldfish underneath, flying formation in IMC underneath that plane. (laughs)
0: So
1: that was fun. And uh, just an example, you know, this is part of the work we did over the Baltic. So pre-satellite, this is all we had. And uh, Naval Command was relying on this information. Even though by the time we landed, it was already, you know, an hour later and those ships had gone, whatever, 20 miles east in the meantime or west, but it was not a big deal.
0: There's obviously lots of tales of NATO aircraft intercepting Soviet aircraft. And I mean, there's a couple on, on my channel where, you know, guys have talked about bombers yeah. trying to disorientate them in the night by shining lights in their eyes and that kind of stuff or trying to drag them into the sea by flying low and then turning um was there an equivalent then from a a surface vessel point of view did they do things to you i mean that's kind of why i asked about if you got a raw indication and you had a surface contact and you're approaching it you would know that it wasn't necessarily NATO because maybe you were preparing yourself for them to do some things that would try to put you off like lock you up or um you know shine lights at you or something like that were they better behaved or did they also engage in the same sorts of um activities
1: mostly they were trying to trick us into their three mile zone uh you know coastal zone at the time there was only a three mile coastal uh coastal water uh, zone later 12 miles uh, after a couple of years so it was really close to their borders and uh, of course uh they were just inside these three miles so we they were hoping for us to get in there and so they could catch us you know do something to us but no i would say the um the average uh, surface vessel that we encountered the fleet they were actually quiet and, and just minding you know the business they were going their way uh, never saw them aiming their guns at us uh doing something nasty uh never had any personal engagement with eastern uh aircraft uh, I saw a few, yes, um, friends of mine have been toying around with uh, fish beds and, and, uh, and such, but uh, me, uh, me personally, I've spent a couple of years in the Baltic, I never had any instances. Later on in, um, in the tornado, we could listen in on the VHF traffic, uh, we only had a UHF radio in the F-104, which was kind of a limitation because we knew they were transmitting on vhf four decimal zero and doing their traffic in german and russian so mm-hmm. later on when when i was able to follow their conversation a little bit on uh, in front of the tornado cockpit we could hear actually you know what they were doing in the gunnery range and uh whereabout they were flying and what they were doing so that was that was different but um back in the f-104 we had Practically, that's all we had, you know, visual identification. um, Yes, daily uh, security briefings, um, uh, intelligence briefings, I mean, from the intelligence officer, you know, talking about various new types of ranges and missiles, so we would be aware. But once we were over there, um, all we could do is actually um, Try to identify them, uh, take a note, and follow their trails and see what they were about to do.
0: You you had no INS in the airplane.
1: Yes, we did. We had a, um, a Litton LN three, which is a very uh, reliable for that, you know, early days, nineteen fifties. Imagine, you know, there was only one airliner who had an uh, an INS at the time. It was the Conway Constellation everybody else was running on sextant and uh, so we were proud to have this ln3 which was allowing us pretty decent navigation when we were flying uh, low level now once um, once you were caught in a in a an attack air attack and uh, violently you know moving around this this thing would give you two mile three mile error maybe five four or five miles but even in the middle of the baltic that's not too bad i mean you won't get lost so uh, the pointer would show to the next destination or the next waypoint just like it does today we had a mechanical box with uh, kind of cogs plastic uh, cogs with clipped in uh, uh, a in a sequence so every waypoint had a different um uh, little kind of a tooth uh, in there and uh, you had 12 stations rotary dial station Mm. one was already home base and then you would go from waypoint to waypoint to waypoint and follow home so uh, it was a good feature
0: so i'm curious then around a couple of things that you've just just referenced but so if i start start unpacking them by the the order in which you said them so you talked about having the daily intelligence briefings and one of the questions I wanted to uh, go uh, to ask you to put to you was how much you knew about Russian equipment and Russian capabilities and Russian training it's interesting you get a broad I get a broad spectrum of answers when I ask that question of Cold War fighter pilots I mean I remember talking to Mike Scott who was flying the F-4 at Seymour Johnson around the time you were flying the F-104 and he said to me they never really thought about you know they never really thought about the Russians they never really cared about who who he was or what he was flying. They were doing their own thing and that was it. Did you, because of the proximity, I guess, physical geographic proximity between us and you and the the Russians, these Germans, did you care more about that? Was that a more pressing thing on your mind to understand who he was, what he had and what he could do with it?
1: I think it was a prime important uh, thing. Uh, we needed to know what they were actually capable of doing and our intelligence was was uh, putting great effort into uh, teaching us and um, giving us, furnishing the latest material about the weapons. We had uh, black and white um, reconnaissance photos from our photo wing. We had one of these, um, one of one of the two naval air wings that we had, had one reconnaissance squadron with photo equipment, high resolution uh, photo equipment with excellent photos with close-up shots of all the weapons 30 millimeter guns uh, of the radar of the uh, rocket launchers that they had. so we, we knew pretty much what was going on. we knew the weapon weapon ranges we knew the coastal radar uh, we knew the coastal um, the capability of their uh, coastal guns. so we said like uh, we would be safe be, below 140 knots uh, 40 feet uh, approaching the coastline something like that to give you an idea. But this is, of course, in the early eighties, late late seventies. So, um, a very early uh, stage where no satellite and no no GPS was around. <clears throat> so, and head-on firing missiles were only just introduced. So, I would say um, the equipment was pretty much known to us, whereas the uh, the tactics uh, we only had. Uh, limited information, because we never met any pilot from there. No defect defected uh, soldier came to Western Germany. Funny enough, at the uh, German officer school in Fürstenfeldbruck, where I had my initial screening, they were regularly uh, receiving the East German Air Force magazine. And uh, so I could actually, you know, openly uh, read about that, their expressions, their tactics—you know—they had different expressions for the same things that we did. And one thing I noticed from the start was, first of all, they didn't fly as much as we did. Like we did over two hundred hours a year. I did two fifty my first year, approximately, which was a lot by NATO standards even then. Um, those guys were flying maybe twice a week, and uh, they had—they prepared every ride. On the ground by marching in the snow with signs held high. You know, I'm I'm the leader on the left. Now we're doing a left turn. They were all marching left. Now here's the target, and they had to do a full medical checkup before the flight. They got they had to do extra sports and you name it. So it was a totally different way of um, flying. And in the meantime. Um, I made friends with an F, uh, sorry, with a Big 21 pilot who told me exactly, which is also in the book, told me exactly how they prepared their missions and how limited their uh, options were as a pilot to decide anything in the cockpit for themselves. So they were actually guided to the very last moment, to the very last incident of the fight, directly to the plane, and then they were giving firing clearance, so to speak. So it was nothing like us, you know, we had a full range of weapons available, we could decide where to go, we did our own mission briefing, we decided when to engage, we had our rules of engagement, yes, NATO rules of engagement were the same, but uh, a great liberty in deciding when and what to do. So a total difference of uh, uh, system on both sides. This is as much
0: as we knew. <clears throat> do, do you think these days, of course, the uh, you know, the VKS, the Russian, you know, the new version of the VVS, the Russian Air Force, has been exposed in Ukraine for, well, that's, let's put it differently. Um, I think the West has clearly overestimated the capabilities of the Russian Air Force based on yeah. what we've seen happening in Ukraine. Do you think that through the Cold War from a uh, Kriegsmarine from a, a German Flyer's point of view that there was also overestimation of what the threat was, what the the Soviet, East German, Russian air threat was. Uh, looking back on it, do you think that's a possibility?
1: Well, probably yes. We we all thought it's a massive uh, um, amount of weapons aimed us at us, you know, and we knew from our intelligence and from open sources that on both sides it was just a tremendous amount of weapons of all kinds, nuclear and conventional weapons. And we knew that these uh, Eastern forces, especially the Air Force, was under constant alert. Uh, they had no time off. They were living on base. Um, they were expected to be there 24 hours a day. Um, no holidays, no guarant- nothing guaranteed actually, constantly on duty. And <clears throat> actually, this is later on uh, i learned that was actually the case so they had um they put their readiness first and material first and then way behind you know the soldiers and the well-being of the forces so that's i think that's how it still is but on the other hand um the level of training itself I learned from this guy uh, that I was speaking about. He actually, sorry, passed away just three weeks ago at age 85. Uh, so, a personal friend of mine. He said um, certain pilots in the squadron were selected for uh, advanced um, <clears throat> advanced advanced fighter maneuvers training. So, only a certain amount of guys received that training. Not everybody on the coastal uh squadrons was actually um receiving over water training um even though they were based in Pien- Munde, you know or some other coastal um bases mm-hmm. you know we had always flown with immersion suits we'd always done um sea survival training every year mandatory training you know being dropped out and uh f- finding yourself in a little one man life raft being picked up by a helicopter. This is so second nature. Those guys didn't have it. So um, part of due to the massive uh, forces and the high readiness, I think they were lacking training and they were lacking um, probably this independent um, way of thinking. also, yeah, I would say that that's the main drawback, the independence of the individual pilot. You know, they were always on the leash.
0: You You talked earlier, Rolf, about the Cormorant, the anti-ship or the <clears throat> anti-service missile. Um, and I was wondering if you could describe a little bit about that and, and maybe talk about, you know, you've just referenced the fact that the Eastern Bloc countries were going to be coming at us in volume, um with not necessarily a technical advantage. Whereas uh you know, Western philosophy and doctrine or NATO doctrine was to have more capable but fewer in number. Did was there a technical overmatch then between let's say the Cormorant and a destroyer, a Russian destroyer or or, you know, any other sort of surface vessel you were going to shoot, could you get inside uh, could you shoot that before it could shoot you? Um, what 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 was that weapon system, and and how were you going to go and employ it?
1: Well, the F uh, the uh, Comrade missile is uh, is related, related, technically related to the Exocet, and it's a fire forget women weapon. Um, you shoot at a certain distance out, and you set it to a preset it to a sea skimming altitude. So it has um, you launch it first with um, an initial guidance from your aircraft saying, okay, this back there is the uh, hostile contact, go fire it. And then it will um, it will switch to the um, independent search mode uh, and uh, guide itself by its own means with the radar to, towards the target. And so you are actually out of the, con- the danger zone already um having done a a 180 turn or a vertical maneuver to get out of this firing uh hazard zone so that was the whole idea the standoff weapon uh, which was the only first weapon of that kind that we had because before that we had french as20 and as30 anti-surface weapons which were guided weapons with a little joystick in the f-104 cockpit Mm-hmm. And that was a very, very difficult thing to handle. And we only did this in exercise. I never fired a live uh, weapon onto a target like some of us did. Um, you know, some of the more senior pilots, because these weapons were terribly expensive. I mean, live firing an exercise. I mean, sorry, a, a Cormorant missile meant something. You know, uh, they were flown ship to Italy and then went to the Mediterranean and Fire this onto a lander class or whatever, uh, and then try to sink that. And I met this gentleman who also lives in my neighborhood now, and he says he he was absolutely uh, devastated by the amount of damage that one Exocet or uh, rather a Comrade missile can do to a to a single surface uh, plane. They're actually, uh, incredible uh, damage. So, yeah, this was our best defense and uh, our best attack. Uh, um, weapon that we had uh the most expensive one and the most modern one that we kept also on the tornado so we went one-to-one from cormoran starfighter to tomo cormoran tornado and it's a pure naval weapon the air force didn't have it in turn we didn't have their nuclear weapons we didn't have nuclear weapons at all no nuclear weapons training in the navy Um, and we felt quite comfortable with the cormoran in case of a armed conflict to be able to fire it and get away. What
0: would you do? Would you come in high?
1: And no, them? Uh, we actually come in at hundred feet or two hundred feet, and then just uh, you know acquire it with radar, um, point it to the direction, uh, launch the weapon, and the weapon would pick up. You know, after a certain time, follow uh, by its own guidance, like. Like a so an air um, so air to air weapon, basically the same procedure. Follow um, the uh, radar structure and then destroy it.
0: Is it still current, the Cormorant? Is it still in use? Yeah,
1: yeah it is. There. Okay,
0: okay. So, so um, that was the other question I was going to ask you: was whether um, you would fly the whole profile low level. You talked about going in the weather, hundred feet, five hundred and forty knots out over the sea. Yes. Um, single pilot operations in that environment, very tricky. And I just sort of wondered why you wouldn't sort of start at a medium altitude and then work your way down once you found something you were interested in.
1: Well, the the basic problem is once you're at medium altitude, you're being detected earlier. And, uh, you know, radar, even though it was uh, not quite as the same state of the art that we have today, they would definitely pick you up. Whereas at uh, 100 or 200 feet, you had a chance to escape or to, to show up undetected. And uh, especially with a force of, say, four, six, eight planes, you know, and then spread out and, uh, you know, 9,000 feet apart and silent, you know, no radio transmissions show up at a very low level. And that was probably the main advantage, you know, the little starfighter with a low frontal exposure Um, Very low radar signature, small radar signature uh, coming from the sun or, you know, coming from the low level. It was an excellent means of, you know, uh, intrusion. And uh, yes, of course, if you had a, if you were coming in on a high low, high profile for fuel saving, that was a different story. But you had to go into the target area way before in low level in order to achieve anything.
0: So, so what can you what can you see at low level on on that radar then I mean how far out would it be searching would it be 20 40 80 miles how, yeah, how far out yeah. were you expecting to see a a, a surface contact
1: I mean uh, yes you have a, a, a 3300 uh, uh, 300 mile plus range but that doesn't make make any sense you know you know within the the frames of the um, the Baltic which is really narrow as I say you know it's like a bathtub you fly in there and you're looking in the in the 20-mile range and uh and you see a blip. And uh, if you have a certain sea state uh, which is not too too heavy, then you will definitely make out something. And this uh radar declutterer declutter function will show you something, even in a mode of 1960s, 70s monochrome radar, you will be able to make out something. And if if you if you see something suspicious and it's not an island or a lighthouse, you will go there and check it out, and that's what we did.
0: Could, <laughs> could you could you end up chasing your own tail or then? Because you you said earlier that other NATO vessels would be there unannounced. Were there days where you fly out and, and actually you would just end up, you know, sort of investigating NATO ships? In, oh yeah, yeah. What?
1: We we investigated kind of uh, attacked the wrong ships. That happened, yeah. We, uh, you know, we ended up, we thought it was like a Russian or Polish uh, surface vessel, but in fact, it was a German one or whatever came across. And we all had a good laugh, you know, because we were able, we were allowed to do random attacks on our own ships. Uh, We had to be careful, though, with Warsaw Pact ships. We're not not allowed to directly bounce them over flying, you know, so low that the superstructure was in danger or that would we feel uh endangered by us so that was not common but uh, yes yeah, so our own ships we would go as low as fast as we could. What
0: was what was the allowable distance then or separation between you and a Warsaw Pact vessel? How close could you get to it?
1: It was not a like a legal limit like a mile or so no we we, we would keep uh, clear and uh, but we had to go close enough to actually read the tail number or the name, and uh, well, that means you're inside a mile and you're actually flying by. And uh, in peacetime, you know, it's it's okay, There's not much really, you have to, you know, you're not prepared for an immediate attack from that ship. And I would say uh, most of us just went by uh, look patiently where where's the traffic try to to see what it is you could you t- could tell from a distance what approximately it proximity was was it a you know a russian or was it a minesweeper or whatever and then uh, figure out what it was take a note and then leave again you know not not harass it not harass it no no
0: very very gentlemanly
1: Well, it's still, you know, it's it's open water, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's Warsaw. It was cold time, cold war times. So, uh, you never knew exactly what was happening, and we knew the um, the fighter forces on the eastern side were armed, so the the planes were armed, whereas we are, we were flying unarmed on Mm. practice missions. So we would never allow anyone to come into our six o'clock.
0: Yeah. Did you ever you you said you never tangled with any fighters. But 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 no. as a community, did you ever get bounced by any guys did, did did any in response to you or your colleagues investigating a surface vessel did anybody ever come up and set
1: you? Yes, uh friends of mine um reported uh fitters and fences, you know, coming up and playing with them. And uh, uh there were also the um odd mig-21s that came by but they mostly flew in in very quiet formations somewhere east or westbound and never seemed to to uh, to leave their their prescribed flight plan and tracks Hmm. so um I i spoke to one air force lieutenant colonel who lives not far away he's still he's still alive and he was the um the only one that got a uh, um, big twenty-one into his uh, his gun sight in a Phantom, and that caused a lot of, uh, of course, a lot of attention with higher headquarters, with brass. They say, "How is this possible? And why didn't they react?" Because he he found himself uh, behind two uh, East German. Um, um, mc21s and uh, said okay why not do a barrel roll and see if they, they do anything you know <laughs> and he had him he tracked him for a long time and it's also the videos on youtube you can you can see it and it's it's fun
0: cool
1: it was he was questioned later and i talked to um to a colleague of the guys that it happened to in east germany and he said well we were not Actually told to we were stay we were we, our rules of engagement were to stay calm and just follow our flight plan, you know, not react and uh, don't start any fighting with these guys. So <laughs> that's why they never did anything. So this is one instance is well documented, documented, and it's 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 in the net. Uh, it was so there's something that happened in the Baltic.
0: I'll have a look. I'll see if if I find it. I'll put it. Yeah, a I can in the send you the link. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: Awesome. No
0: problem. Okay. I'd love to see it. Yeah. So, so I I will um, show even more my ignorance of maritime operations of, of naval <laughs> warfare. But but uh, is there an equivalent uh, a navy equivalent of AWACS? I mean, was there some kind of surface based maritime radar that swept the North Sea or the Baltic or whatever, and that would allow you to be vectored into in, to investigate a service yes. contact in a sort of a mission controlled way.
1: Yes, there is but a, within the small theater of operations that I was mentioning, the Baltic is really the part that we actually talked to, it's a very small area. And we had a Danish coastal radar station uh, on Bornholm Island, which is right in the middle of the Western part of the Baltic, uh, between all the various uh, borders with East Germany and Russia and so on, Poland. And uh, they had excellent radar capabilities and they could actually track down to low level the airplanes and of course high level with the Danish Air Force and German Air Force that did the different, uh, you know, fighter tasks that we did not do. But uh, AWACS, um, yes, uh, was already starting then, of course, was already around, Uh, but we, as Navy pilots, uh, then did not use AWACS. It was our uh, area of operations was really limited. And uh, what we used was information from our own naval headquarters and from the Danish radar stations. That was pretty much it.
0: But but would they do that role for, for surface vessels? Um, you know, did you... Because you you've talked about not going in a medium altitude because the detection range means that they'll see you first. You don't want that. So was there any equivalent for ships? So yes. um, they would be able to say, "Well, we see a ship. You know, here's a course or a bearing or whatever," and and and, and vector you in.
1: Well, it did. Yes, that also existed. Those were the same uh, Danish coastal stations, and we also had a, a couple of intelligence ships of our own uh, that could receive and uh, and uh, identify signals from the eastern uh, forces surface and um, those were highly uh, sophisticated uh, ships with uh, radar domes on top uh, on the superstructure and Russian speaking personnel inside and we had Constant survey, surveillance by our own Brigade Atlantic uh, maritime surveillance aircraft and anti-submarine aircraft, who also had Russian-speaking uh, personnel, sergeants and uh, you know naval personnel on board, who were constantly deciphering um, messages and uh, listening into to, to uh, their traffic radio communications. So, yeah, there were some informations, and uh, but. Generally, we were not radar vectored on daily basis to some some contacts. no this didn't happen. We were most, mostly on our, on our own um, sent out to explore and and we didn't just fly surveillance uh, reconnaissance we also did a lot of practice attack runs. of course this was a lot of uh, a lot of our work was dedicated to uh, low-level practice attacks in the Baltic and in the North Sea, so um, attacking a simulated target in, in, you know, presented by a lighthouse, for instance, you know, saying this is a Russian destroyer and now coming in from various directions, attacking with, with guns and bombs and so on, and hitting the TOT within five seconds. and. Um, so this was another part. And of course, we had um, what we call attack progression um, exercises where four of us would leave on a, one of these bombing missions uh, as a formation. Uh, two would play the escorts, um, looking, on, looking out for hostile um, air traffic. And then one guy was totally detached as a fighter coming in from anywhere, trying to bounce this formation. And that, of course, caused a lot of uh, attention when he came in smoking from the sun down from 20,000 feet to a formation flying low level and very difficult to detect him um, at any point along our route and then trying to pursue the target with a bombing force, whereas the escorts were trying to deter this incoming uh, bogey. So that was... uh, that was a big part of our weekly training.
0: Did you have air to attack in?
1: At? Um, not at the time. No. Okay. We so, got that with tornado.
0: So the guy doing the bouncing would do it presumably based on knowing where you were going to be at a certain point. Yeah, he in
1: knew time. where we were being. We were going yeah. to be by by following our you know visual flight plan pretty much. But he knew you know this this point in time he is supposed to be at this island, yeah. and uh, hopefully there we were. But uh, no, we had no idea. Later on in Tornado, yes, we could switch on air to air and we could tell, you know, in our airbox where approximately the other guy was.
0: Yeah, you 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 did say that a secondary your know, air to air was the secondary role for you. Um yes. How much did you practice that then? That's a very perishable skill, isn't it? I suppose all these skills are perishable. But yeah. how how did you keep your hand in at, at BFM or yes. the air to air side?
1: In the Navy um, that we had then, um, it was a big part of these uh, attack flights with simulated attacks and it practically almost ended up in in this setup, almost ended up, uh, we ended up being bounced by a fighter and then automatically getting into a sandwich situation, circling around until we got our speed and... uh, We had a formal BFM basic fighter maneuver training in the temporary reserved airspace over the North Sea near our coastline between uh, 8,000 and 24,500 feet. For instance, that was a space that was reserved to our fighter planes uh, just doing formal uh, exercise. But the more realistic exercise was actually being done at low level when somebody came in and uh, with a lot of overtake, uh, you were already going 540 knots, and he was going 600 knots. And then the fight was developing. You know, he was trying to get behind number five, and number six was trying to get behind him. And uh, everybody was yelling and shouting and brake left and do this and do that and accelerate and bogey is here and bandit is there. And uh, obviously, there comes a point where. With a limited air to air capability of the F one oh four and in a similar aircraft setup with two F one oh fours fighting each other, it won't take very long until one guy's out of energy and has to knock off the fight. Hmm. Because you don't want to go way below three hundred knots and you fall out of the sky.
0: What well, uh, what was the what was the game plan, the BFM game plan then for an F one oh four? You you would where, where were you strong then? Uh, instantaneous turn rate uh, to speed? Uh, yes, or-
1: um, acceleration. I mean, our 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 emphasis as a Navy pilot was basically attack and evade if you can. You know, low on the deck, unload, extend. Go down to 50 feet, plug in the afterburner and get, get the head out of there. Because once you got into a serious fight with a dissimilar aircraft, say a MiG-21, who has got all the advantages, you know, a trained fighter pilot on the stick a very good aircraft with better turning capability you're dead from the start so what we tried is uh f-104 training um was keep up with the basic fighter maneuvers which means defensive turns um avoiding avoiding all dangerous uh, low speed and uh high aspect ratio uh, uh, situations, trying to um, manage our energy uh, within the limits of the F-104 Starfighter. This means can trade speed for altitude, try, try to get into his turning plane by pulling high, getting down, do a high deflection gunshot, um, try to launch that uh, missile. Um, at the proper speed and the proper point and um, so basically what every other fight has been done since Immelman, and uh, so the the fight, the rules haven't really changed, it's only that various planes, different planes have different capabilities and the F-104's drawback was really the poor turning capability and that was really, I mean even today uh, you ask yourself why did they select a plane uh, that was um, so bad in uh, in that respect, you know, because mm. any subsonic uh, plane on the right day, the right person on the controls would kill you. Mm. So, yeah. That's uh, that
0: sort of brings me into uh, another question around sort of performance of the aeroplane, and and that is its legs and duration. It's, so it's uh, you're at low level, so you're going to be burning much more gas down there than you would be up higher. Uh, the aeroplane is small with these tiny little wings. Um, how much fuel did it have? How much duration did you have? And then, if two questions is in a row isn't enough, the third question is how did you do your fuel calculation? So if you're, you're you've got all these things going on at low level. You just set a bingo before you take off, and then yeah. you honour that, or or are you actually looking as part of the ops checks at fuel, fuel burn, distance from the coast, or you know uh, the INS point one, which is your with your base, whatever?
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. You do a, a pre planning with a, a low level map on your knee, which shows bearings, distances, and also fuel values, and so every every major waypoint. You're supposed to have that much fuel, say 2,300 pounds. Now, you were asking how much did the fuel um, fuel did the plane have uh, without external tanks? You had 5,825, uh, 24 pounds of fuel on board. Now, you were burning at least two and a half thousand per hour. So you would say in a in a normal environment. <laughs> One hour, one hour flight with reserves, one and a half hour, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had more tanks, we had up to four external tanks. They had uh, 1167 or 12 or five pounds on board. That would extend your range, but it would also limit your capabilities. Less G-loads, uh, poor turning capabilities. No mark, uh, no supersonic mm-hmm. flight with four tanks. So you would have to drop in anyway. And, <laughs> Uh, yes. So on a on a routine basis, you would figure out your flight plan and have fixed values of um, minimum fuel on every waypoint that you were supposed to have. And if you went below that, you went straight home. If you if you hit it, you were bingo, and you you declared bingo to the rest of the flight and said, "I'm bingo. I'm going home." or we are approaching bingo fuel, guys, uh, watch it. You know, the flight lead would say something. And at that point, everybody would just break off operations and we, you know, get the formation back together and head for Schleswig airfield. So, uh, yeah, it's an important point because with that fuel consumption and the little you have, but well, that's the same in every fighter. And I don't think it's, it's a big difference. So you're always fuel conscious and you have a so-called minimum touchdown fuel um, that you will never uh, never bust if you, if you approach the field. You need to have a certain amount of fuel in order to reach your destination and possibly the alternate if the uh, runway is blocked for somebody who's lying on the, on the ground, can't land. So these values are always observed.
0: You you talked, well, actually I talked, you kind of talked a bit about weather, but I said right at the beginning that people always talk about having trained in the US, they come back to Western Europe and they, they're um, affected by the weather. And you talk about that immediately uh, in your book. Um, can you describe the challenges of flying in Western Europe with the weather system that we have as a single seat
1: guy? Yeah. Well, first of all, it wasn't just a weather problem. You went to uh, to a big country from a big country to a toy store. You know, Germany was five minutes in one direction and five minutes into the other direction. And you were gone. You know, we were in Poland and the East Germany. You're a communist country, so uh, you were very, very much aware of the fact that you couldn't really move, and this also affected the um, later the whole instrument flying, all the procedures that we have were narrow airspace tailored uh you know uh sort of procedures with a buffer zone and the added for and dedication so but yes the weather difference was tremendous we came from arizona where you know the weather is always nice sun every day and uh, so they didn't send us straight back to our original squadrons we were sent to a special school um another former world war ii airfield uh, called Yeva, incidentally also an in a Royal Air Force Base after the war. It's right by the North Sea not far from Wilhelmshaven. And uh, the only purpose for us there was to learn uh, to fly under instrument conditions in the real poor weather. So we were we were lucky. we were in 1978, 79 was the worst winter, winter conditions in Europe then, you know heavy heavy snowfall, and uh, a lot of, lot of gusts and everything so we were what we did is mostly um, start off single ship uh, shoot approaches in almost every available airbase around do uh, pr approaches uh, gca approaches uh, climb out again next base, and so on until we ran out of fuel and came back home the next night, we probably did it as uh, two-ship, and one guy was a lead, and the other guy was obviously the wingman. And that was tough because you had to watch out for both planes, and uh, yet execute the, the same proper procedures. And with this old-fashioned equipment that we had, of course, no screens, just one Tarkan receiver, which is basically a VOR DME indication, you know, distance and a, bi- a pointer di- a dial uh, showing to the direction of the radio station. It's not much you have and uh, our weather limits were not too good either. We had um, visibility of uh, 800 uh, meters and uh, 200 feet uh, decision height, which means uh, by today's standards, it's not much. We had no ILS and if the weather was bad, we could only get down by a ground control push, GCA. But well, that was excellent training. And once we recovered from that, it took a couple of months to get us uh, adjusted to the German weather and to reset our minds to the uh, the new political and the geographical situation and the special procedures that we had, you know, IKO and, uh, you know, uh, um, American procedures were sometimes different, you know, different uh, vertical separation and so on and so on. It was okay. Once we got out of there, uh, we went to our squadrons and got the real limited comet ready training. That's when it all started. So further training and training.
0: And and this was all presumably fix-to-fix then, was it? On the TACAN?
1: Yeah, so. you did fix-to-fix. And uh, basically all you could do is go from one point to the other, either fly straight to a station or figure out yourself, you know, uh, Mark eyeball where to go left and then figure out uh, a certain angle where you would expect to intercept this radio mm. and fly to that station. So it wasn't bad for, for mental practice, you know, got you got you a pretty good idea of where you were, you know, uh, stay in the safely in the, in the airspace of civil aircraft, we were a different frequency and had different equipment and. Uh, At that time, there was still a separation between operational and general air traffic, like it is still today in certain countries like Brazil or France, I think. But in Germany now, it's all one big system. And uh, they all speak, of course, on the same frequencies. We have VHF, UHF. We only had UHF, as I said. So it was a big difference to fly around in this, um, well, different environment under different weather conditions. Did, did you big do time.
0: any of this at night did you do i mean did you do any operational stuff at night as well
1: yeah we did night uh night low levels and uh we did uh night surveillance uh 500 feet minimum altitude over the sea uh yeah lots of things uh so
0: and you're just yeah. doing that on the, on the radar so you've got a radar that's just going to beep. exactly as you go yeah. below
1: radar was our main tool of course um for all the level flying set to a a safety altitude of minus 10%, you know, so buzzer would come on or light would come on and saying, hey, guys, you know, watch out. Uh, But uh, yeah, the development of the radar timer meant a lot. And it was really the best tool that we had later on with autopilot, but not in the Starfighter.
0: You, you, I suppose you wouldn't really need any kind of autopilot if your duration is only an hour and a half. Anyway, yeah, so. you
1: use it. You did use it for high level uh, flying to Sardinia or somewhere to France. You know, if you wanted to put the plane somewhere, yes, it was boring at twenty five thousand feet to fly by hand, and you rather <laughs> look outside. And well, it was a very basic autopilot that could, uh, you know, hold your altitude and direction, not the speed, not the approach mode, nothing. So. Mm was different from today.
0: And I, I suppose we're sort of drawing to a close, but but sort of final question that I'm thinking of right now, at least, because I always say final question and then I think of another one. But did you, uh, you didn't at that time have any air-to-air refueling capability? I know that they introduced it on later Starfighters. Did the did you guys ever get that capability, air-to-air refueling?
1: No, the US Starfighters did have it. There's even a movie uh, uh, out uh, showing some, Hollywood movie with uh, staff refueling, but we never had it, and we only got it in a tornado. Okay. So we had to stick with what we had in the tanks.
0: What, what would be, you know, if, if you were going to tell one story about flying the F-104, I put, I'm putting you on the spot, but if you were to tell one story about flying the F-104 to somebody, what what story would you tell, or what or what memory would you share?
1: Well, my most memorable flight was obviously my last con- cross-country to Iceland. When uh, when I I stopped, we 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 were two aircraft uh, flying from Schleswig Naval Air Station where we were stationed to Lossiemouth in Scotland, and uh, Lossiemouth did refueling and then hopped over low level to Iceland, which was a long stretch over water, no radio contact. We had no HF. We had our immersion suit on and you're pretty lonely out there and so we had a flight plan and we knew people would probably look for us if we were not showing up on time so we were we were coming up to to iceland and the weather was absolutely gorgeous and we had fuel in our tanks so we called the tower at the time uh, uh, u.s navy say hey you know uh we'll just uh do some sightseeing we'll be back later and uh (laughs) So we went to the glaciers and we shot our photos and everything. And then we landed and spent the weekend. That was the whole primary aim was the navigation part and just do some sightseeing. So we rented a car and looked at Iceland. And then Monday morning, I was starting up uh, the Starfighter and the oil low level light came on. So it was totally dry. There was no oil whatsoever in the whole engine. And uh, we said, how could this be? And the guy uh, loosened a few screws on the on the outside, and he found uh, pretty much. Uh, uh, after a few moments, he found the uh, the answer uh, was one of the main the the tank uh, uh, the um, the hose from the main uh, oil tank uh, to the engine was leaking. So while I was flying over the glaciers and having fun, I actually <laughs> lost all the oil. So that was the interesting part. So I could have been, you know, bailing out somewhere over Iceland, and but this never happened. So um, the nice thing about it was uh, we were stuck there for another four days until a German uh, Air Force uh, transport brought a new engine. And, um, and they put in the engine, they tested it. And once they did it, uh, we were in a, in a big hangar with the u.s air force uh, housing uh awax planes so there were armed guards with m16 machine guns you know and for four heads watching us and so good uh, good guys from the u.s united states air force and security police and we were all done our mechanics had a big metal chest and they opened it up and i th- i thought well what's inside this chest it was full of booze and so, <laughs> So they had a toast on this engine, and the American guard with this M16 he was standing by, these Germans are crazy. So <laughs> the mechanics, of course, we we couldn't drink because we, we were supposed to take off, and we left the same day. But the mechanics, they had a nice drink. They were allowed to stay another weekend until they went home with the old engine, and then we left and flew back to Mouth, flew back to Schleswig, and that was my last... Last real uh, big ride in the F one hundred four before we went to uh, to tornadoes. This was in, in summer of eighty two. Forty years ago, forty, 40 and a half.
0: You had uh, your four uh, years on the F one hundred four then. Yeah,
1: right, right. Okay. right. Um, and
0: how how many hours did you get?
1: I just over a thousand, maybe a hundred thousand three hundred or something. Uh, I have my mug inside the, the shelf, one thousand hours. So uh, yeah. Uh, I flew over 200 a year, so yeah, I just got over a thousand. That's it. Mm-hmm.
0: What, what this is this is now my final question. I promise you. So, so what was your um, what was your survival time going to be if you had to eject into those waters? Then, so you're wearing an immersion suit. Uh, presumably, it wasn't measured in minutes anymore, but maybe hours.
1: Yeah, I would say um, our training took place in waters above 2.5 centigrade. So we were ditched in the uh, in the Elbe River, um, you know, outside shipping traffic, and that was pretty realistic. There was snow, and uh, you know, it was freezing cold. But with this immersion suit and the uh, puppy suit underneath, you know, this gray flannel suit and the uh, and the inflatable gloves that we had, and the um, how do you say these um, these rubber seals uh, that we had, and the helmet, everything. could expect to be alive for quite a long time Uh, if you went to the personal life raft and uh, if you managed to you know stay halfway dry and outside the gales and the and the, the frost because chill factor of course the wind you know uh would have made the situation worse but i I spent quite a few hours in those years uh, in these, um, I mean, accumulated hours in these one-man life raft, and even though my fingers were just warming us inside these put-on gloves, I didn't feel that bad, and I didn't feel that, you know, lonely and unsafe, and Mm -hmm. uh, I know people have been picked up from the icy seas, uh, and they all survived. Uh, if you put on the emergency suit, you had a good risk, good chance of survival.
0: Did, did that seat, the C2, did that offer a, well, I suppose it depends on the conditions of the ejection, doesn't it? But it, it generally, did it offer a good chance that you would land in the water without having flailing injuries or uh, being otherwise incapacitated? Because, you know, if you. Yeah.
1: No, the, uh, we flew the, the, the Martin Baker GQ7A. just uh, okay. um, this, the C2 seat was a lucky seat that was before my time and that was the one um, notorious for fatal incidences with a seat hitting the head of the pilot and you know just tumbling down and spiraling towards the ground now with our Martin Baker seat which was an excellent seat of its days uh the man seat separation was not an issue anymore so we were sure to be very very far apart from our uh, from our original sea we had a, a survival pack in underneath the uh in, inside the sea cushion which was attached to us by a by a nine and uh, that stayed with us all the way down to the sea and it contained the personal life raft and some survival equipment so uh, if we ever left the plane and under halfway control conditions and ejected and Got on, you know, released the parachute, and the rest was pretty good. And we were expecting to be in the in the life raft soon and soon after.
0: So did you wear did you wear leg garters uh, to yes. to retract your legs into the seat? Okay,
1: absolutely. Okay. Yes, uh, we had uh, blue lines uh, in a diagonal way attached to the seat and onto our um, special. Wristbands or, head, I mean, leg bands that we had to uh, Velcro tape to our to our uh, uniform.
0: It's been um, fascinating listening <laughs> to you recount your stories on the F one hundred four. Genuinely, it has. I wonder. Um, you just mentioned the tornado. Would would you come back and talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, if you like. Yeah, be happy. Thanks. Yeah, okay.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Ten Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.